Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hello again. It's me one more time. Hi, welcome to CCF. Uh, there's some newer folks here. Welcome. Um, this happens every Wednesday. Love to see you back, but uh, you're here. You're in for a special treat if this is your first time. Uh, in the year of our Lord, 2016, I was at the National Student Conference, which is a thing we used to go to, uh, and I went to this workshop that was something about reading the Bible with an Eastern perspective or something like that, and there was this tall, beardy man who had these tassels hanging from his belt loops, and uh, he was a very fascinating uh, teacher, and I was like, I got to talk to this guy, so I made him have dinner with me. And then we talked for several hours, uh, and that was the beginning of what has become, I'm going to say it, Marty, it's become a very close friendship. Oh, that, I just, it's so hard, and it's so hard for me to admit that he is actually still a very fantastic teacher. Uh, he is the host of something called the Bema Podcast, which is pretty awesome and has gotten bigger and bigger and He's not too big for us here, though, so uh, would you please welcome with me Marty Solomon. Come on, Marty. For anybody who's curious, those strings aren't hanging from my belt loops. They're actually an undergarment, and if anybody knew anything about my undergarments, I would have assumed it would have been Reed. I knew that I knew that would be a crowd pleaser. I knew I knew that that one I knew that one would hit. All right, everybody, knock it off. Um, it's been too long. COVID sucks. Yeah, amen. All right, I'm here on a Wednesday, which means I'm not supposed to take as much time to talk, but oops. I know that it's customary to show photos of my family, so here's another one. There you go. They're all wonderful. My daughter, we head off for her bat mitzvah. Uh, man, in like a month. What day is it today? Yeah, a month. We leave for her bat mitzvah. So that's a thing. Our newest member of the family who you've never seen here before. Yes, that is a corgi husky cross. Sometimes called a horgy. Sometimes called a corgski. Anyway, his name is Kalmar for any wing feather saga folks in the <laughs> All right, excellent. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, here's what I want to talk about tonight. This isn't like as much of a prepared presentation like I would do on a Sunday when I was gathered here. Last time I was here on a Wednesday, I told my story and that was weird. So, I want to talk uh, today about confession and repentance and learning from the Jewish practice therein. Um uh, I've learned a ton in the last few years from this. This is actually a recent learning curve for me. And the more that I talk about it with groups, the more that people tell me, like, that was unbelievably useful. So I don't want to build up the anticipation too much because it's not unlike this deep, profound, I've never heard of that before. But just watching how Jews package the conversation, this comes up during the high holidays, which uh, the first high holiday starts off with the Jewish New Year known as Rosh Hashanah. Say Rosh Hashanah. 
And it leads into the eight days of awe or the ten days of repentance. It's ten days of ten Jewish days of reflection where you spend time just thinking about all the things that God's inviting you to kind of like get rid of and purge from your life. In the Levitical days, it would have been connected to the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat and sending your sin away, and that's where it lands. Obviously, without the temple, it's changed. But you start with Rosh Hashanah, and you end up at Yom Kippur. Say Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so that whole journey of the High Holidays is a journey of reflection. It's a journey of confession, repentance. And I'm learning is just chock full of unbelievably relevant teaching that they pull from the Talmud and the conversations that come from the rabbis concerning the practice of the high holidays. And so I, I've just learned by listening to these other rabbis talk about it. If you had a membership to alephbeta.org, um, you could watch like just hours of videos and teachings and courses on the high holidays and, and this. Um, but anyway, I, I also wanted to share this because I was trying to connect it on some level to my story. I want to keep with the spirit of Wednesday uh, testoramonies. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's very catchy. So uh, I should have put my testimony up there. I don't know what I was thinking, but th this is actually one of the things that I've learned in my own life. I hope that as we talk about this, this will be helpful on one of two levels, if not both or many others. But one, you might hear this as the person practicing confession and repentance. You might hear this teaching as like, oh, I need to, that's what, that's where I connect with it in my story. Uh, I have gone through this long journey for golly, what going over 15 years now, um, where I, I I have a I have a therapist that I see every couple of years. It's an un, I've spent about six months just doing a little emotional health and wellness check. Um, I've learned that I have narcissistic tendencies. I I'm not somebody with full blown narcissistic personality disorder, but I have tendencies, and I've had to learn from this process a lot. So maybe there are some of you here that are in similar places and you'd be like oh oh golly i'm like marty i i know how to manipulate people which is not good like especially when you're in a place of leadership that kind of abusive weaponizing and leveraging of relationships can be super super dangerous on the other hand you might be somebody that's like hey, how come I feel like a doormat and, and people say they're sorry, but it never seems to, like, something's not right. And there might be some of you that are in that spot, and you might have a sense of, I don't know if I want to call it validation, but there might be a sense of, like, oh, that's why that, that's why that is. That's where that's coming from. So we'll see. And then, and then there's a whole other group of you that might be like, well, that was a waste of 40 minutes. <laughs> the other reason I like this conversation is because I feel like when Christians talk about confession and repentance, we're all like, oh, yeah, I get that. Like, confession and repentance, yeah, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance, yeah. And there's no, like, what I love about the Jewish conversation is the theology is robust and rigorous. <laughs> Not that I'm going to spend a whole lot of time in that rigor here tonight, but just know that it's there. Like, the fingers of this conversation go in all kinds of different directions. Like, there will be depth and color and... If you want more and more theology, hopefully you will see that you won't need somebody's help to open the door to that kind of conversation. But uh, another thing that I've appreciated about this. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these five steps. I've seen this list from some Jewish thinkers in four steps. I've seen it in five. I've seen people do it in seven. I'm going to do five because it's my favorite. So we're going to do five steps, okay? Five steps today. 
of what is the five-step process of appropriate apology, confession, and repentance. Five steps. First steps. First step, got to acknowledge the wrong. You're like, no kidding, Marty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it starts. It starts with confession. The word confess. Confess. To fess with. To fess. I, I'm, I'm in a room full of, like, word nerds, so they're probably going to be like, well, actually, Carver or whatever his name is says, guard, guard, yeah, that guy. I had one more, and I just used it. I, I could only badmouth that one more time, and I just used it right there. Um, so so, you ha- so there's, there's this idea of fessing with. You are joining with, whether it's a testimony of your conscience, whether it's a testimony of, of God and the things that he tells us, whether it's a testimony of other people, you are fessing with. You are joining, you are giving a, a, a fession with some, some other voice other than just simply yourself. There's a conversation taking place. There's an acknowledgement of the wrong. Now, here's why this is a no-brainer, because this is where we start. This is also where we typically end. Christians love to just confess and get to the forgiveness, and we've confessed, and now I'm forgiven, and now everything's great, right? I've confessed, and we kind of rope it on to the same thing. Confession and repentance and forgiveness is all kind of like one single act, And I don't know, I'm not going to try to pull apart like the atonement and the God and the salvation and all that. Today's conversation is not so much about what happens in your relationship with God. I believe that forgiveness is more of a reality that we swim in. It's the water that we swim in rather than something we have to have a transactional relationship with. However, there's this other thing that we always forget about as Christians. It's called relationships. (laughs) Thank you for some of you chuckling at that. Like, our, it's not, our sin is not just a spiritual reality. Vertically, there's a horizontal reality that Christians do a really bad job, typically, of actually dealing with. We just want to fix it with God, stand in the freedom of forgiveness, and then sing songs, right? But there's, there's something else that we have to grapple with that is actually intertwined with that same relationship with God thing. Isn't it John that says... If you claim to love God but don't love others, then you're a liar. Like, th- this love can't exist without this kind of love. But we love to try to streamline that, right? So, so Christians will often do the confession thing and call it repentance. But confession and repentance are two totally separate things. Confession is simply wor- the, the door you walk through to start the process of repentance in the Jewish world. The second step would be I have to identify how the wrong negatively impacted others. Uh, So there's staff that work in my organization, and some of us have gone through this process. I have found that for many of us, this second step is the hardest step where it all breaks down for us. And I don't know why. I I know for some of us like myself that has narcissistic, narcissistic tendencies, this is the biggest challenge, to actually see somebody else in the conversation. But... The second step of, okay, so let me use an example. So um, uh, let's say that I engage in slander and gossip against somebody. I can confess that I have done something wrong. I can even confess with the person that I've wronged. So I, I slander against Kivon. And, uh, and I, I slander against Kivon. And I can, I can go to Kivon and I can actually say, I, have, I, I actually engaged in gossip and slander last night over at Derek's house, and it was wrong. I didn't actually. I wasn't even over at Derek's house, but I could. I could say that. 
I could also do that, but this is just a metaphor. Um, it's just an example. But then what I have to do is I have to recognize how that had an actual impact on Keevan. Does that make sense? I have to recognize that my gossip and slander had all kinds of implications. It hurt Keevan emotionally. It damaged our relationship and the ability to trust. If I gossiped and slandered, it had other ripple effects than just between me and God and just between me and Keevan, I also affected somebody else with my sin. I have to be willing to come to grips with the fact that my sin had an impact and to be able to clearly identify what that, we can't just be like, oh yeah, and I know that hurt people. No, that's, that, no, no, no. I have to be able to clearly identify and help, and help those that have been wounded and hurt identify how that mistake, how that sin has actually impacted them. I need to go to them and actually hear how that sin has impacted them when they're able to engage in that kind of conversation. Sometimes they're not. Does that make sense? This is where a lot of like, you ever watch the apologies from celebrities or politicians? And they're never really apologies. Like mistakes were made and we've dealt with it and we're sorry. And you're like, oh, they said they're sorry. Why do I not feel like that at all? Because they never truly confessed and they never came to grips with the fact that that wrong had implications. And so a lot of times when you watch celebrities that screw up and make a mistake and their PR people tell them they need to issue an apology and it never really, because they're, they're even saying all the right words. But instead of acknowledging how it, how it actually negatively impacted others, they actually explain, which actually comes off as like trying to justify. Or uh, we'll go without names here. No, 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 no. Or, or you'll have, right, you'll have these in Boy, talk about throwing me off for the evening. <laughs> but we'll, we'll have these, you'll have these conversations that never quite, or, or here's what a narcissist like me loves to do, right? We love to center the whole thing around ourselves so the confession becomes oddly about myself. Even as I'm saying sorry, somehow the story has now centered itself around me and my narrative. True confession repentance centers itself around what's happened to other people. There are other victims. If you're the one making the confession, the repentance, you're the offender, and there are victims in the situation, right? Again, like rock, rocket science? No, never was taught this at any point. And I went, oh, well, I issue, I issue apologies to my family all the time. I've never engaged in this step. I've never, I've, I've, I've apologized to people at work and never truly ever sat them and said, and I, here's how I know, I know what this mistake has done to you. So I remember going through a, uh, an exercise this last year with my staff, my executive staff, and I tried to practice all these things and it was unbelievably healthy for me to go, okay, here's the, here's the mistake I've made, completely unintentional, but I made it nonetheless and it had implications. And because I made that mistake, Here's what it did to my director of staff development. And here's what it did to my director of spiritual formation. And here's what it did to the administrator. And here's what it, what I, and acknowledge that out loud. And say, I know that what I did made your job more difficult for the last nine months. And that's not okay. And I see that and I acknowledge that. Next step, 
make any necessary amends or reparations. Sometimes what you do, so if, there's a go- if I gossiped and slandered against Kevin, I can confess, I can go to Kevin and talk about how I hurt him, I can go to anybody else I need to to talk about how what I did had a negative impact. If there's anything I can do, sometimes you can't because the damage is emotional. Sometimes you can't because the damage is something that you can't quantify. But sometimes the damage is literally physical damage. Sometimes the damage is, and I can go actually make amends by having additional conversations to explain to people how what I did was wrong. And this is actually, I can go make amends. This, by the way, has unbelievable um, implications for even larger institutional, corporate, or even social conversations. But that's as far as I'm going to go with that discussion tonight. I'll let somebody else do that here. Nobody chuckled at that, but I... The fourth one is clarifying the steps that you will take to better yourself and not repeat. Okay, so what have I done? I've now confessed that I've made a mistake. Do you see how thorough this process is if you intentionally, consciously engage in this process? And yes, this is uncomfortable. And yes, this is a lot of work. But this is what leads to a more reconciled, repentance-driven approach. Because this is, this, yeah, these are, these are intense steps. You don't just get to, like, show up and have a cup. Hey, can we have a cup of coffee? Can I? And yes, there are some things that are stupid and water under the bridge. And I get that. I'm not trying to, say, make a mountain out of a molehill. Did I say that right? Yeah, I did. I'm sure I'll be told if I use that word wrong. But if, if there's, of course there are those things, but, but when, those, when, the, when there are actual mountains that need to be dealt with, that probably isn't just a cup of coffee to say I'm sorry. There's other conversations and there's more work to be done on our behalf. So not only did I confess that I made a mistake and not only did I acknowledge the implications that that had on so-and-so, Keevan in this instance, not only did I make amends and any reparations that needed to be made. And I went and had other conversations that made sure that the damage stopped and, and, and there was some restitution for that. But then I also, especially to Keevan, who I've offended, especially to Keevan, I would, I would then clarify to Keevan, this matters to me, and I don't want to do this to anybody again, let alone you. And so here's now what I'm going to do. Here's the steps that I'm going to take to make sure that I don't do this all over again three weeks from now. Here's the therapy that I'm going to go to, which is what I told my executive team. There are three items on my five-item list that just was, I need to talk to a therapist about that. I don't know why I do that, but I need to figure it out. And it's not okay for me to just go, hey, I do this, and it hurts you, and I'm sorry. And here's some, I have to keep doing the work to go, why do I do that? Because I have to stop doing that. Does that make sense? And again, I wish I did this more with my family. I love to tell my family I'm sorry. I actually hate to tell my family I'm sorry. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. And yet, that's always where I stop. I very rarely look at my wife and I go, I very rarely tell her this is how my mistake has impacted you. This is, this is what I'm going to do to try to make up for what I did to you. And here's what I'm going to do in the future so that I quit doing this so much to you and the kids. But then there's a fifth one. This one's actually super important. This one, make sure you're ready with your notes. Change the behavior. 
and only when the behavior is changed in the Jewish mind is repentance taking place. Repentance is not what happens at confession. Confession is the door you walk through to start, but repentance, is, repentance has, taken, has taken place when your behavior has changed. And, and, and it's the world around you that gets to decide when that happens, not you. You're not the one that gets to send the itemized checklist and be like, I've changed my behavior. Here, here's, the, here's the evidence. Here, no, the evidence is the fact that your walk is different and the people that you've offended and the people that you're closest to go, man, I've really noticed that you're changing. And it's usually not like, a, oh, it's done, but it's this ongoing process of being redeemed. But this is what repentance looks like. And so only when I stop gossiping and slandering, especially against Kievan, have I truly engaged in the entire process of repentance. So just put it on the same screen because sometimes that's helpful. Acknowledge wrong behavior. Identify how the wrong has negatively impacted others. Make necessary amends or reparations. Clarify the steps you will take to better yourself and not repeat. Change your behavior. Now, I want to look at the Bible because I feel like that's an important thing to do before we're done today. Um, and I don't just want a proof text, but we'll get to that in just a moment. I just wanted to use one more. Let's just do one more example just to make sure we have this um, in our mind. Like, I just want to make sure we understand this. So... I don't know, um, let's say I have a, a, a red pickup truck that I don't put in park. <laughs> and <laughs> this is just a hypothetical. <laughs> but but I, I damage property. <laughs> and so I, I go and I say I, I've, I acknowledge the wrong. And, and this hypothetical person sends a text to Keevan and says, I'm really sorry for doing that. And I know, I know this hypothetical person says that it's a, it's a brand new van in this hypothetical situation um, that I've nicked and I've dinged up and an offense that's been repaired more than once has fallen, fallen over. And then I make necessary amends and reparations, right? We fix the fence and we pay for the damage and all that kind of stuff, right? We, we clarify the steps that we will take to better. I feel like this might be the place where w this hypothetical situation probably, probably need to spend some time, whoever this would be, <laughs> right? Right here. I don't know, I'm just, it was just so much fun, Reed. It was just. <laughs> oh, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to do that. It was just too great. Okay, let's go. I want to go through. Okay, so here's one, here's one thought that I have here. This is why, and again, this isn't rocket science. Nothing's probably blowing your mind here spiritually in these five steps. And yet, I feel like this is a personal opinion. Maybe this is way too cynical. And if it's way too cynical, then fine. I'm, I'm way too cynical. I've been accused of that quite a bit. But I think this is what the world needs to see for a season from the Christian world, by the way. At Christian individuals and Christian institutions and Christian groups because we have wielded all kinds of weird power, cultural power, cultural influence in all kinds of weird ways. We've found that we're guilty as individuals because these systems get all wacky and out of place. Anybody, I don't know if anybody's listened to the Rise and Fall of Marcel podcast and how disturbing that can be at times. Like, we've perpetuated some of this stuff. And the world has seen that. And in a lot of ways, and what I love about Gen Z, is in a lot of ways what Gen Z is doing is they're holding the Christian world accountable 
for what we've always claimed to be about. And I love that about you. And that's hard. That's difficult. And all my colleagues that are older and pastoring churches and aren't in campus ministry are really frustrated and, and that's really hard for them. But, but thank you for doing that because we'll be better. We will be better for that, I promise. But um, I, I think this process is what the church is going to need to go through. Rather than keep trying to like explain it and move on, okay, we fixed it. No, we got to go through this process. And it won't feel like we're conquering the world. It'll actually feel like, like there's a death taking place. Um, but I feel like that's almost what we were invited to do, to die to ourselves. So as individuals and as corporate bodies and as institutions and as movements, if, if we can grapple with what it means to just simply, what was the call? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly. So I feel like this is like a really relevant conversation. And I, and I have it in lots of places. This isn't for, for CCF. No, this is a conversation that I get to have in lots of places, and people are like, oh, man, that was really helpful. So let's look at some passages. We're not trying to proof text here. We're simply trying to think about the principle in light of a passage in its context. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's, here's kind of a weird one, because John is actually talking about our relationship, the relationship with God. John's not necessarily trying to address the horizontal relationships in this passage. You can go check out 1 John and tell me what you think. But here, here's the idea of confession, acknowledging the wrong. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Which is, by the way, important to begin this process. Like at the podcast, we talk about trusting the story all the time, the concept of Sabbath. Like you have to have this grounded identity in the fact that you are loved. You are the beloved of God, not the condemned of God, the beloved of God. That you are loved, valued, and accepted, and all you need to do is what's right because there's no like failure that, you, that God doesn't catch you from. So it's okay to confess. Like there's something about this passage that is unbelievably relevant when it comes to my horizontal. If I confess my sins and God forgives me, well, then I'm free. I'm free to now work with my horizontal relationships and be honest about that. But if I'm always afraid of having to be awesome or else the condemnation is going to reign, that affects the way that I do horizontal relationships because I don't want to grapple with what I did wrong. It's full of fear and condemnation and insecurity. And so... Having this understanding of I'm, if I'm, he's faithful and just, he'll forgive us if we confess our sins. We're, we're fine. Let's get about the process of confession and repentance because we'll be okay. The one thing we know for certain, we don't know how our relationships will react, our family, our friends, the people we've offended. We don't know how they'll react. We do know how God will react and we'll be okay. His grace is big enough, Right? What about uh, identify how the wrong negatively impacted others? Here was a weird story that came to mind as I was wrestling with this. About three months later, so Judah, Judah is the son of Jacob. Judah, and the, and the story is all weird in Genesis. Like you're following the story of Joseph. Remember, he gets thrown in the pit and sold to Egypt. You know the story. And then the very next chapter is this weird story about Judah. Like we pause our regularly scheduled broadcasting to talk about Judah and Tamar for some weird moment. And then we get back to Joseph. And you're like, <laughs> What? 
that story have anything to do with anything else? And it turns out the answer is yes, like tenfold. But that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But, Ju- but Judah leaves the family for whatever reason. I think we could speculate about that. But he's somewhere else with his sons. And his oldest son marries a, a woman by the name of Tamar. And he dies before he and Tamar have children. Now, in the ancient world, and this is going to seem weird to us maybe, but in the ancient patriarchal world, the ethical, in a patriarchal system, the ethical thing to do, because she's now a widow without children, so she is now, in that ancient patriarchal world, she is without an anchor and just adrift as a woman, as a widowed woman. And so in that culture, what you did was the next son married the widowed sister-in-law, and had children through her, and the first child went under the name of the deceased brother. Does that make sense? That's in Torah. If you actually want to look that up, you can just Google that and read all about it. But that was the, and so what happens is, is Judah's son dies. Tamar is without child. So he takes his next son, and he marries him to Tamar. And for whatever reason, he purposely doesn't father children with her. We're told that he spills his seed, is the way the Bible puts it, whenever they are intimate. And so that never fathers children. And then he dies because God says that's so wrong. Like, instead of taking care of this woman, you're purposely not. So God takes his life, Genesis tells us. And then Judah's like, man, this woman is bad news. And he does not give his third, I'm not giving my third son to her. I'll lose all my sons. So he blames the woman. I'm sure this is not relevant at all, by the way, to our culture. I'll get to something more relevant later. <laughs> Thank you. It was funny. This is super relevant, right? So, and, and of course, so, so, so now she's been wronged. She knows it. And so she sets up this, he's out of town with his sheep. She dresses up like a prostitute. And if you're like, this story is so jacked up, then you're, yes. Because this is the complexity and weirdness of life and injustice, right? This is what happens when shalom gets all weird and distorted. And so he goes, and so he sleeps with this prostitute and doesn't recognize, doesn't realize it's her, which raises a whole host of questions, and ends up fathering children through Tamar. So that's where we pick up the story, right? About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, here's some backstory I didn't tell you. He's not able to pay for her services earlier in the story. And so he leaves behind his cord and his signet. Right? Did I say that correctly? How does this translation say it? Seal and cord. Seal and cord and staff. He leaves behind those items as collateral, thinking he's never going to see. Actually, he does send the the lamb to go make the payment later, sends the goat to make the payment like you do. And they're like, there's no prostitute here, which is totally confusing for him. Nevertheless, she's now pregnant. Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize who sealed and cord and staff. These are. So she sends this privately, which is wacky to me. Because now he can do whatever he wants. All the power dynamics are obviously in his favor. He can take this. And by the way, the Jews say, have you ever under, wondered why the, 
why the Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah? The rabbis say it's because of this story. Because these, the seal and cord and staff are, are items of kingship. And so Jews say this is the story where Judah decided what kind of king he was going to be. Was he going to be a king of, I think Reed recently talked about, right-handed power? That would just, oh, I, I don't have to deal with this. Or is he going to be the king that realizes and does what's right at the sake of his own reputation, humbles himself, pursues, right? And so what does he decide to do? Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Now, this could be a stretch for our principle. But Judah is actually, by the way, if you ask a rabbi who the, story, who the hero of the story of Joseph is, it's not Joseph, it's Judah which you'll have to listen to more teaching to figure out why. This is the moment that sets the whole story in motion to bring the family back together. Is Judah being willing to confess and begin the process of repentance publicly in front of other people? He says this is, and now there's a whole lot of other things that need to be done. I get, to, I get, I get that. But for a story in Genesis, this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. He recognizes the implications the, 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 what, what has, how his wrong has negatively impacted others, to put it very lightly. Make any necessary amends or reparations. Sometime, uh, I don't want to go through it right now because I don't have the time, but just read Exodus 22 and look at all the wacky laws that God goes to the time of saying, if this happens, pay this, and if this happens, pay that, and if this happens, make amends this way, and this way, add 20%, and this way, add another fifth, and if this way, two-fifths, and if this happens... Because making amends is a part of justice, reparation, repentance, reconciliation. I had this fascinating sermon preached to me. Um, we had this partnership with a, a black church in Cincinnati, and their pastor was there talking about justice. And he used a metaphor of, if you came and, and stole my car and then you realized how wrong it was that you had stolen my car and you said, I'm really sorry I stole your car. But you didn't give me my car back. <sighs> that would be really weird. And he says, and probably, you, you would probably actually, if you were truly sorry, you would probably actually fill it up with gas and get it detailed and maybe fix a ding or two in the door because that's just what justice and honor looks like in relationships and again that's where i'll leave that conversation for tonight but i was just very moved by i think we just in the name of god and forgiveness and wiping the slate clean i feel like we just cut too many of these corners in jesus name and i don't know if that's actually what jesus asked us to do i think we've missed something Clarify the steps that you'll take to better yourself and not repeat. When Jesus reached the spot, this is the story of Zacchaeus. He said to him, Zacchaeus, now Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see. And Jesus said, come down from here. I can't remember how the song goes now, sorry. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he's going to his house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zaki stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. There is huge debate about what he says in a Jewish sense. 
Is he saying, I never cheated anybody and I'm guilty of character assassination because of my vocation? You can read that in direct translation and in Jewish context as Zacchaeus saying, listen, Jesus, I've never wronged anybody, but everybody hates me because I'm a tax collector. But I did my job with honor and I did it correctly. If I have wronged anybody, I'll do this. Or, for the sake of our argument here tonight, he comes down and he identifies what he's going to do. Let's assume he did wrong people. Some have argued that the idea that Zacchaeus is small in stature is not a reference to his height, but a reference to his character. But Jesus welcomes him in and he says, listen, this is what I'm going to do to make it right to everybody. I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back for it. He outlines what he's going to do in front of everybody. I want to be restored in relationship to you all. Jesus said to him, today salvation. Wow. Salvation has come to this house, which is a play on words because Jesus' name is Yeshua, which means salvation. So it's like Jesus is like, today, Yeshua, come to your house. And everybody's like, what does he mean? And Jesus is like, ah. <laughs> because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. One last one, change to behavior. I thought of this immediately when I thought about this. Paul, speaking to the Galatians, when I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So Paul, so that's a story, like overseeing the murder of Christians to being St. Paul the Apostle. I, would cl I think that classifies as repentance. <laughs> that's a change. And... And, the, and, and they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. His reputation preceded him. He, his life was different enough that the rumors, the good rumors had spread. He's a different person. You got to go, you got to go listen to this guy. You got to see this guy live it out. Uh, here's my closing thought about this whole process. I can, I can tell you this from my testimony. When you engage this process, and it's difficult, and it's long, and it's lengthy, and it is not built for efficiency. It is built for efficacy. It is effective. It is not efficient. And it is not easy. But I'm not sure if any one thing has changed the character of my relationships more than this process. I have become so much more aware of the presence of other people in my life because I've had to go through the process of going, oh, my actions impact you. It, like this isn't just about like one sin, one instance, one situation. This is about me actually seeing the, all the pieces on all the players on the playing field, seeing all the implications coming to grips with that and it changing the way that I live. And not just because I don't want to have to do that again. That was awkward. But because I, I don't want to have to do that again because it hurt people. And I don't want to hurt people. I actually don't think there's too many people in the room that want to hurt people. I would hope. And so this process gets us in touch with the reality of that, that we so too easily like to miss and avoid. But, I mean, I can remember college, and there's so little drama that goes on that it's probably, save this for when you graduate. <laughs> Thank you. That was also a joke. Anything else I have up here? I promise this will change us. Confession and repentance, learning 
from Jewish practice. I found it to be a really healthy exercise to engage. Can I pray? Father God, I I feel like we're so afraid. We're so afraid that you're angry at us. We're so afraid that we fail. We're so afraid and insecure. We're afraid that we're not enough. We are just so afraid. And it keeps us from not just doing what you want us to do. It keeps us from becoming everything that you want us and desire us to become. Because you, you really want us to become people of love. And, and we're not going to do that by, by just kind of ignoring or cutting the corner on things like repentance and relational reconciliation. God, we also, we also know, and I'm hoping that everybody here in this room is intelligent enough to realize that there are complexities and nuances like sometimes you don't get to have the conversation with the victim because it's just not right and there's a boundary and there's a consequence to that. So sometimes you don't just get to restore a relationship. Sometimes relationships we have with our family or our parents or s sometimes this doesn't just work like a five-step process. But God, understanding the principles of what it means to restore relationships, understanding the principles of what it means to truly go through the process of, of reparation, whether that's physical reparations and property or relationships and emotional well-being. And God, I, I'm thankful, I celebrate and I praise you that we have so many people in this generation that are not afraid of the therapist and the counselor because we want to be emotionally healthy. So much of the stuff that we engage in comes out of our own emotional immaturity and our own emotional dysfunction. And so we want to become more emotionally whole people. We know that at the root of that is Sabbath and grace and love and acceptance and peace and the gospel. So remind us of the importance of the gospel, uh, the bedrock of everything that we do, not just the way that we get somewhere else when we die, some glad morning when this life is o'er. God, would you remind us that the gospel is, is something on the bottom, not something we're chasing at the top, but it's something that we build on. And would it change the way that we relate to people? Would it change the way that we show people who you are? Help us to act justly, God. Help us to love mercy and help us to walk humbly. Pray all this in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.